We all know the world of energy and natural resources is changing fast. People are demanding action on the climate crisis. Businesses and politicians are throwing their weight behind the energy transition. And technology is reshaping the world as we know it. But we must ensure the result doesn't become too complex and too confusing. That's where the Climate Transition Podcast comes in. In this series, DLA Piper's Energy and Natural Resources team speaks to special guests to help you make sense of it all. My name is Natasha Luther-Jones. I'm the global co-chair of the Energy and Natural Resources sector here at DLA Piper. I'm also co-head of our International Sustainability and ESG offering. And I am your host for the series. Today we ask, will oil giants supercharge the energy transition? We will be living with the impacts of COVID-19 for many years, but not all the impacts are negative. By forcing countries to focus on green recovery policies, the pandemic may have sped up the energy transition. Oil giants are no exception. BP, NI, Shell and Total have all responded to COVID-19 by setting out plans that could massively increase their investments in renewables. Activist shareholders are increasing the pressure on US oil giants too. Chevron and ExxonMobil both suffered shareholder rebellions over the climate in recent months. This may force them to speed up their own transitions. In this episode, we're going to look at how far oil and gas majors have to go to make their own energy transitions. How much have they done so far? How much urgency is there for them to do more? And will their investments help to supercharge the energy transition? To help me answer these, I'm joined by Catherine Peachy, Head of Structured Finance at Norwegian giant Equinor. Equinor was one of the first oil giants to commit to going big in renewables, and it's been making waves in the last year. It reached financial close for the 5.5 billion Dogger Bank A and B offshore wind projects in the UK in late 2020. And in June 2021, it set out plans to step up the pace of the energy transition. Catherine, welcome to our podcast. Hi, Natasha, and thank you for having me. So we'll start off with a a nice, easy question. Um, So, Catherine, will you um, tell everyone how long you've been working in renewables? Sure. Um, I've been working in renewables for over 15 years now. Uh, I started my career at International Power many years ago, um, and I've spent the last nine years prior to joining Equinor at MUFG Bank, uh, leading project finance bank in, in renewables, whereas I director focused on advisory and lending to power and renewables projects. I joined Equinor about a year ago uh, as the head of structured finance. So, so what made you move? What, what attracted you to Equinor? So Equinor's a, a broad spectrum energy company. Its roots are traditional uh, in oil and gas, exploration and production. But today it's much more than that. And, and they're really a, a leader in offshore wind development and in utilising the, the decades of offshore experience that they have in oil and gas to become a leader in CCUS and hydrogen production. I think where many companies have, have looked at, at the energy transition as a challenge, that they, they have seen it as a, an exciting opportunity to utilise their experience and knowledge in the industry to um, explore new opportunities um, and drive innovation. 
It has an, an ambition to be the world's most carbon efficient oil and gas producer, uh, as well as driving innovation in offshore wind and renewables. And that makes it a very exciting place to be at the moment. Yeah, it's great that they see it as an opportunity rather than something they have to do. Yeah. Um, so your role, Head of Structured Finance, how does that role in Equinor help Equinor's energy transition? So Equinor's in a, a very fortunate position that it's got a strong balance sheet and it's used it to develop many of its large scale projects, both in oil and gas and also in renewables. Um, my role is to look at alternate types of funding, um, particularly structured or, or project financing. And our increased ambitions to grow in low carbon, uh, combined with the fact that many of our partners um, prefer project finance, means that project finance is becoming a, a core part of our toolkit and it will help us grow renewables and low carbon business at scale to the target levels that we've set. So would you tell us a little bit more about the recent goals that have been set for net zero for the net zero strategy? Sure. So in our recent Capital Markets Day of, of just a few weeks ago, we announced an acceleration of our transition to net zero. We're accelerating um, how we transition and have set an ambition to reach 40% reduction in net carbon intensity by 2035 on the way towards net zero by 2050. Uh, to do that, we're stepping up investments in renewables and low carbon solutions to more than 50% of our gross capex by 2030. And we expect to reach an installed renewables capacity of between 12 and 16 gigawatts. And that's our, our share of, of installed capacity by 2030. And by 2035, we also have the ambition to store 15 to 30 million tonnes of carbon every year and to provide clean hydrogen to, in three to five industrial clusters. So quite big ambitions and really accelerating what we're trying to do. That's great to hear. Um, I mean, it's super interesting that you're planning 50% of Equinor's CapEx to be in low carbon energy solutions by 2030. That would be up from just 4% in 2020, so a massive leap. Um, why do you think it's important to make that sort of commitment? We're confident that we have an important role to play in the energy transition and we want to take a leading role in it. We're very serious when it comes to our commitment to renewables the largest industry project we have currently under development is Dogger Bank Offshore Wind Farm. And that the investment that we have in that project surpasses the biggest um, investment that we have in, in oil and gas, Johan Sverdrup, which, which is the third largest field on the Norwegian continental shelf. We're already one of the most um, the world's most carbon efficient producers of oil and gas, and our ambition is to maintain that lead. We believe a low carbon footprint will make us more competitive in the future. And we believe there are attractive business opportunities in the transition to the low carbon economy. But to achieve those ambitions, we need to invest. And that's why we've increased our planned CapEx expenditure. So, so if we're looking at your, should we delve a bit deeper then and look into the how you're going to adapt your portfolio to meet those targets? So what sort of technologies are you going to be using Sure. So there's three pillars really to how we're going to, to meet our net zero targets. The first is really capitalising on our strong oil and gas portfolio and setting a new standard for carbon efficient operations, be it through electrification or, or improved production methods. Secondly, we're going to accelerate our growth in renewables. Um, we've already got a strong position there and we want to, to build on that. And then lastly, we want to be a leader in carbon management and clean hydrogen production. 
that will change our portfolio from today's position and it will place us at the the forefront of the energy transition while still creating value for our shareholders, which which has to be the, the key driver for us. So if we look at this acceleration of renewables side of stuff, is, is that just in offshore wind? No, um, we've got a target of 12 to 16 gigawatts of installed renewables capacity by 2030. That's a step up from today where we're about five gigawatts of secured capacity. Much of it will come from offshore wind, but we also still have um, a focus on onshore renewables as well. We've identified projects in Europe, uh, the US, Latin America and Asia, which will help us reach those targets. And we also want to create value by having four to five uh, regional offshore wind clusters in those areas. Does floating wind, will well, will floating wind play a part in the future for you? Um, we've touched upon this in um, a previous podcast. So I'm interested to get Equinor's view of the floating wind sector. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, many of those areas I, I just mentioned um, will have a, a large build out in capacity in floating wind. Um, we're already at the forefront of floating wind um, with the operating floating wind farm High Wind Scotland, which we've had under operations for a couple of years now. And we've got a project under construction in Norway as well, High Wind Tampen. And that High Wind Scotland project is the world's first floating offshore wind project, and it's been very successful. Um, it's consistently the top performing offshore wind farm in the UK, and it's really shown the potential for floating offshore wind globally. And we see ourselves as being very well positioned to be able to build on that experience and take that global. I was going to actually ask you how High Winds has gone, because when that came to the market, it was um, there was a lot of fanfare and trumpet. So it's good mm. to hear uh, it's operational and, and has done really well. Did you raise finance, external finance on that or was that just done on Equinor's balance sheet? We didn't raise external financing. No, we we saw it really as a as a test project for us to make sure that we could get everything right first time um, so that when we expand into um, floating wind uh, more uh, more at scale we're ready to, to raise fi- financing and, and we can see how everything works properly. All tried and tested with all the lenders queuing up to raise project finance on floating wind sounds good. Absolutely. Uh, um Maybe a comment that's often made that oil giants are coming into offshore wind with very deep pockets. Um, How do you expect to shake up the market in the coming years and decades? So um, we've been we're not new to the party in terms of offshore wind. We've been around um, for a number of years now. Um, We've been constructing and operating offshore wind in in the North Sea for for numerous years now. Um, And we can utilize that experience to develop early stage projects um, and create value, not just for us, but for our shareholders as well. Um, and also for to create value for money for, for the consumers. Um, but we did see in, in the most recent seabed auction that in the UK that there's a significant influx of companies trying to catch up. Um, and to do that, they are willing to pay high amounts. Um, that's going to drive up costs if that trend continues. And it will increase the cost of green energy for the consumers. And it's not really sustainable in the long term if we want to meet the ambitious net zero targets that have been set by government. Do you think that COVID has accelerated those new players coming into the market, paying big amounts? Has has that had an impact, do you think? Yeah, I think COVID has highlighted uh, for many just how much change is required to achieve the ambitions that have been set. Um, it's highlighted that 
to to meet the the cuts in emissions, whole sectors of the economy have had to shut down, um, and that that's not really sustainable long term. And it's highlighted we need a, a step change in in what's required. I think combined with that, we saw an oil price um, fall last year, uh, and it showed us what the world could look like for oil giants after we reach peak oil demand in at some point in the next decade. Um, and and the change to how we lived last year highlighted the impact of some of those changes on the oil and gas industry. So, for example, if we travel less for business or we work from home more, um, and it highlighted, I think, the need for for many oil and gas players to embrace the the chance to adapt, uh, as we have for many years. Yeah, COVID has definitely impacted the energy transition in so many different ways Um, I don't think anyone could have foreseen actually the impact it's had and the acceleration and the sense of urgency that that now goes with energy transition Um, maybe taking a different tack now you were talking about some of the jurisdictions which was interesting to hear Uh, you know um, you're talking about the US Latin America Um, what are Equinor's plans for um, how to expand and accelerate renewable energy in those jurisdictions or other jurisdictions? Is it sort of to, to develop and grow organically or are you going to look to make acquisitions? So I think Equinor has proven that it can can build successfully from early entering into projects early um, and use its execution experience to, to create value before farming down um, to partners. And we've done that in the U.S., um, we've done that in Poland and we'll look to do that in the future as well. I think that's how we see that we can accelerate into high value growth markets. Um, it's been mentioned before, actually, the need for more collaboration and partnerships in developing. So clearly that's at the heart of how Equinor uh, are approaching the energy transition as well then. Yes, absolutely. Um, so when we were chatting and um, you mentioned floating wind clearly and high winds and the, the test case for that, are there any other technologies? I should have asked you then really, hydrogen, is that a big part? Uh, you know, batteries, what other sort of storage solutions are Equinor looking at? Yeah, so we see that renewable energy is a, a key part of the story, but that the energy transition requires more than just that. Um, we need carbon capture and we need clean fuels such as hydrogen um, that can be used to in difficult to electrify sectors such as industry and, and heavy transport. Um, so, so that's a really key part of our strategy is looking at hydrogen and carbon capture. Could we talk a little bit more about the hydrogen um, sector and the strategy then? Um, is that um, green hydrogen, um, blue hydrogen, grey hydrogen on the spectrum of colours? Where does uh, Where does Equinor sit? So um, we've got a lot of experience in carbon capture and storage. We've been um, operating carbon capture and storage for over 25 years in Norway. um, And we want to utilize that experience um, globally. So for us, um, our strategy is is looking at blue hydrogen and green hydrogen together. Um, You know, I think there's... uh, a thought in the market that perhaps you have to look at blue first and then go towards green. Um, we have a slightly different view. Um, at the moment, I think blue hydrogen has a very clear cost advantage over green hydrogen and it's more scalable uh, and can offer predictable production flows. Um, most commentators believe that the cost of green hydrogen will come down uh, very rapidly. But we also think that demand will increase and it will be so large that green hydrogen as it matures, will be added on top of the blue hydrogen rather than replacing it, even when we get to 2050. 
So we're looking at options both on, on the blue hydrogen side and the green hydrogen side. We've got a number of large-scale projects being developed in major industrial clusters, particularly in the UK, um, which utilise both hydrogen production and, and carbon capture, where we believe we've got a good, we're well positioned to create value. Um, and we're also looking at, at green hydrogen opportunities uh, associated with renewables as well. And we've got our Northern Lights project uh, in, in Norway, which is the first stage of which is being constructed at the moment. And that's the world's first flexible carbon capture and storage project where um, industrial customers can ship their hydrogen, uh, their carbon to us uh, and have that stored. That's exciting. I can't think of Northern Lights without thinking about the actual Northern Lights or the book my daughter's just finished reading, but um, <laughs> it can be called a project as well. Um, that's good. Do, do you think um, that sort of strategy on hydrogen, will that really help decarbonize those um, hard to reach sectors? Are you yeah, fully in the belief that heavy industrial use transport will ultimately be decarbonized through hydrogen then? Absolutely. Um, I, I think renewables has been very successful. Um, but those difficult to reach sectors don't really work with electrification. Um, we see it as needing clean fuels such as hydrogen. Um, and that's why we're focused on producing large scale green and blue hydrogen. Exciting. Um, is there any financial innovation given your role is head of structured finance? Um, and we've talked very much about technological um, innovation is there any financial innovation that's needed then to you know to approach the energy transition and what what Equinor have to do yeah I think financial innovation is key to to the change required um, but also to achieve that financial innovation we're going to need some early stage support for for new technologies from government in the same way that we've seen for offshore wind We've seen how government subsidies have promoted private funding from commercial banks, ECAs, institutional investors, and it's driven at scale build out of the offshore wind sector, driving costs down. To drive new industries like hydrogen and carbon capture, the same will be required, and I think we'll see it. But we need to acknowledge that the government can't subsidise new technology forever. And to build a market and an industry around these new technologies, private financing will be required. So all sorts of innovation are needed and will happen in order to take us on that energy transition journey. That's good to hear. Um, looking forward now, then, maybe asking your view, your personal view or the view of Equinor. Um, what, what are the biggest changes do you expect to see in the sector by 2030? So my personal view is I think that the next sec the next decade we're going to see a lot of change um, provided the government set themselves up to be able to support these new technologies. I think we'll see a big rise in hydrogen and carbon capture, which is really the, the next big thing that's required to, to decarbonize industry. And, and I think quite quickly we'll see costs fall uh, and markets develop for hydrogen. And once those technologies become more established, I think we'll really see momentum in how emissions are reduced. I think renewables will continue to grow. Um, and I think we'll see substantial growth in new markets as well, like the US, like Asia. Um, and they'll take on an even greater role in the energy mix, um, which is exciting. Yeah, it is. What do you think about 2050 then, really looking far afield? <laughs> Hopefully net zero. Um, I think the momentum and the wills there um, to see a significant shift in the energy sector in, in the next few decades. 
but it's reliant on on government support um, through robust regulatory regimes um, and also private investment in the form of project financing, government financing, and and so on. Um, I think it's achievable, but it, it's a big target and and definitely needs a lot of work to be able to get there. So, looking to the future. Um, what sort of role do you think that the current oil majors will play in that future? What sort of part will they play? Significant? Yes. I think um, the route to, to net zero will be difficult and expensive if oil and ma- gas majors don't play a major role. I think we'll see them become um, more diversified in the products they supply and how they produce those products. And I think energy majors such as Equinor have vital experience and expertise um, needed to to adapt to a low carbon future, we see ourselves as as being uh, important players because we have a very strong knowledge of of the basins in the North Sea, which we can use for carbon storage, or because we've got long term experience of working offshore, which is hugely beneficial for us when we're operating our, our big portfolio of offshore wind farms. So I think um, oil and gas majors will play a, a very significant role in the future. Great. Well, look, I have a question I ask all our guests on our podcast, but I have a feeling I know the answer already, but I'm going to ask you, are you hopeful for the future? Yes, I think we're we're at an exciting point in, in the energy transition. Um, I think we can make significant progress provided we, we make the right decisions now. Great. Well, look, um, thank you so much for your time on the podcast, Catherine. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Oil and gas companies face a lot of criticism about their environmental impact, but it is important to remember that they are crucial to the energy transition. They also can't be seen as a homogenous blob. They all have different strategies and can have a huge impact thanks to both their expertise and their investment. It has been great to hear more about Equinor's journey. That just leaves me to say thanks very much for listening. Please catch us again next time when we're asking... How can we ensure emerging markets aren't left behind? Please subscribe to the series at dlapiper.com forward slash ENR or via your usual podcast platform. Mm -hmm.